106 District, another episode of Podcasting with Sean Caston. Sean Caston is the Democratic candidate for the 6th District's congressional seat, which of course is up for election on November 6th of this year. I'm Ben Finfer, joined by the candidate himself and a father. Happy Father's Day hey. to you as we record this, Sean. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ben. Hope you've had a good... Well, do you have any kids yourself? I do not have any kids myself. You have so a father. I do have a father, yes. <laughs> that I do have, and grandfather as well. So, yeah, I guess we could start with that. It, it was also, besides being 100 degrees outside Father's Day as we record this, so what was what was your day like leading up to this? Uh, we got a lot of time in the heat. It was, uh, it was actually kind of cool. My daughter, both my daughters like to cook. Gwen, my oldest, has kind of a cooking bug, and so yeah. she... And how old are they now? So Gwen is just entering, she's 13, just about in her ninth grade next year, and my younger daughter's 11, in her sixth grade, Audrey. So old enough to actually do stuff for you, yeah, not just have mom buy the present for them. Yeah, they can use the stove and <laughs> right. sharp knives. Uh, but they, uh, they've recently discovered, and I'd, I'd encourage all your users to try this at home, if you take any biscuit recipe, add chives and cheddar, and we got a big pile of garden chives outside the back door, so we've made a habit of this in the mornings. I don't know if, like, you know, red and yellow make orange. Chive plus cheddar makes bacon. People don't know that, but if you combine the two in a biscuit, the oven smells like bacon. <laughs> I swear this is true. It's really pretty magical. So so they made me some chive cheddar biscuits. There is no recipe. You just find a biscuit recipe, and you, you dump in a pile of chives that looks about right and a pile of cheddar that looks about right. And it was pretty good. So we had that, and then we uh, went off and marched in the Aurora Pride Parade and got really sweaty. And I think after we're done here, we're going to go see The Incredibles tonight. Uh, and I've heard Incredibles is good, but <laughs> I don't think they need our promotion from that. I think they're they're doing all right this weekend. And it's also incredibly hot outside, too. It's like uh, 100 degrees as we record this, luckily, in yes. the safety of air conditioning. Uh, as we do these, we've been... You know, we're obviously having a little fun, but we also want to talk about some important issues. And I guess it's sort of fitting on Father's Day. We're talking about Medicare and Social Security a little bit, which which people know those words. And if you're a younger voter, you've heard of them. You might not realize how that actually affects you. You think, oh, that's something that my father has to worry about. But obviously, it is an issue that affects all of us. So before we get into sort of what what is going on, think ways to fix it, improve both programs. Medicare, Social Security, what are they? How do they affect especially young voters? I guess the thing, for, the thing to think about as young voters is from a history perspective, being old, unemployed, and poor sucks, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and even two out of those three ain't great, right? You know, we had these waves of reforms, you know, back in the New Deal that said, let's figure out a way to let people sort of retire with dignity. The simplest way to understand it is that Medicare was designed to be health care for older folks who didn't have their employer providing health care anymore. Medicaid was designed to be health care for poorer folks who didn't have the resources to provide health care regardless of their age. And there are some people who are eligible for both, obviously. And Social Security was designed to be one of three ways that, in aggregate, allowed people to have enough income to live on through their golden years. But it was designed to sit in combination with whatever wealth you'd accumulated during your life and savings, and then with whatever pension your employer provided you. And that last piece is really critical because when Social Security was created, the standard model for employers was to provide the term of art as a defined benefits pension that says, 
when you retire, you will receive X dollars per month. And that's true regardless of how much you put into the system. But if you're if you're eligible, if you worked your 20 years, your 30 years, whatever the requirement was for your employer, you got this pension. And that, plus your savings, plus Social Security, lets you basically not worry about how you're going to feed yourself and keep yourself warm. And you had your basics covered. That history matters because we need to make sure that Social Security remains solvent. We need to make sure that it's got, as particularly as we get an aging population, you know, with the demographics, if, if most of your population is young, it's really easy to fund Social Security. If most of your population is old, it's tricky because younger people are working, older people are not, stereotypically speaking. But even when that system works, we live in a world now where, for the most part, companies don't provide those defined benefit pensions anymore. You have whatever you contributed, whether to an IRA or 401k. People may not build up as much savings as they used to. So the idea of Social Security being the proverbial three-legged stool, even if, we, if Social Security is perfect, it still is only a one-legged stool. And so we've got to think about structuring this in a way where folks who have worked their whole life have contributed, have paid their dues into a system that funded the generation prior needs to be taken care of. And, and us younger folks have an obligation to make sure that we're paying it forward, as it, as it were. Right. And I'm probably oversimplifying it here, but essentially the issue is that more money is coming out than is going in, that there, there aren't as many people paying in, or at least that used to be. And of course, the problem going forward is when someone maybe in their 20s now or 30s now, the fear could be when they get to the age where they'd be receiving Social Security, the money's not there. Well, there's a couple things, and there's always a danger in too much oversimplifying, but number one, you do have the demographic issue. So as bubbles flow through the age bubbles, demographic bubbles flow through the, the life cycle, it's easier to fund at the beginning than the second. The second piece is that while the U.S., native-born population has been aging, we've been a very welcoming country for immigrants who tend to be younger. And so if you look at places like Japan and Europe that have historically been less open to immigration, they've hit these challenges much earlier. So the, the whole Japanese stagflation hit before ours, not because their native-born demographic trends were different, but because they weren't as open to immigration. When we close our doors to immigrants, we make these problems harder. That's not to say you should have a totally open-door problem for everybody that comes in, but a part of the challenge we're seeing on Social Security in the era of Trump is that we've closed our doors to some of the younger folks who come in and work and contribute to the system. The third part that's driving some of the challenges that there's been Social Security has, you pay out of your payroll, um, Social Security tax, and that money piles up until you need it, and the government has that money on its balance sheet, and it can take it and invest those Social Security funds, that big pot of money, uh, has been raided by several administrations to create fictitious but temporary cash flow surpluses. And that's unconscionable. And we've done that not only at the federal level, we've done it at the state level as well. People in Illinois may recall 10, 15 years ago, regulators were taking money from, from state pensions and saying, well, you'll get it back because the economy will grow at 8%. That's a lie. But now we're, Illinois is paying that price as well. That was a mistake made by short-sighted politicians a decade ago. But all three of those things have combined to create some challenges for Social Security as it sits right now. And the tax plan that was passed recently by Republicans, your opponent helped write it, certainly vote for it. What, how could that affect both programs going forward, too? 
that tax plan is so terrible. Terrible. <laughs> Number one, Roscombe is claiming that he wrote it. They dropped 400 pages the night before it was drafted, so the only thing I know for certain is he didn't read it, because nobody had time to read it. The tax plan does nothing for Social Security and Medicare other than creating over $2 trillion of deficits going forward that are driven solely by a reduction in revenues to the federal government. While it doesn't do anything directly for Social Security and Medicare, it puts pressure on the government to dial back on other services because there isn't enough money that's there. Any person who sits in government and says, I just moved $2 trillion of revenue out of my own volition, and now I'm going to cut services, is a fundamentally amoral person. It is mean, it is unethical, it is amoral, and you can see the Republican leadership chomping at the bit to do that. Um, we should be filled with righteous anger over, over this one. We don't have to cut those services, but you can see them salivating at the prospect of doing that. What do you and other Democrats want to do, can you do, going forward? I don't claim to speak for all Democrats personally. The, the tax plan was such utter and complete garbage, rip it up, throw it away, and then at least we've got $2 trillion back, right? We can talk about tax reform that's meaningful, but stripping $2 trillion out of the economy is not useful. The, the second thing which I think we can and should do is Social Security is a fundamentally progressive tax, right? It's, it, it shifts wealth from those who have much to those who have little and it's good public policy. It is funded by an inherently regressive uh, structure where only the first $130,000-ish of your income is actually eligible for Social Security taxes. So if you pay, if you earn $150,000 a year of salary, you pay just as much to the Social Security Trust Fund as you do if you make $2 million a year in salary. And so the burden of paying for this very progressive benefit is disproportionately borne by, by people at the lower end of the income scale. So just taking off that cap and saying the 6.2% that you pay out of your salary every day that's contributed to Social Security, instead of capping that at that first floor of Social Security wages, just make that a tax on all wages. And, and again, if you're making $2 million a year, you can afford it, right? Mm -hmm. The Just taking that off would substantially eliminate whatever near-term solvency issues there are for Social Security. And so if you get rid of the $2 trillion hole that Peter Roskam and his cronies have created, and then basically just make this an even tax where everybody pays an equal percent of their income, you would then substantially solve the Social Security problem as it's currently structured. So it would be a, a short-term, well, I shouldn't say short-term, but it would buy some more time to come up with a more long-term solution? Well, it, it, would, it would largely solve the, the, the Social Security problem as it's currently drafted. It doesn't solve the problem of saying we still designed to be one of three legs of the stool. Right. We still have to address those other two legs. And if we were designing Social Security today with the same intent that FDR and others had during the FDR during the New Deal, mm -hmm. we probably would design it differently because the economy is different, right? So we still need to do some creative thinking about that, but it would at least solve to make sure that the, the system as it sits today is viable. And this goes to a belief that you and the Democrats share that everybody should be taken care of healthcare-wise. It seems like, of course, 
that of course they should be, but that's not what the other party and your opponent feel. I mean, that that's a major difference, wouldn't you say, between you and them and him? There's a stereotype that we all fall into, and maybe it's true. I mean, there's a grain of truth to every stereotype, I suppose. The stereotype is that you know, you know, that a, your stock issue Democrat wants to look after everybody and is empathetic, and you know, wants to make sure that equal opportunity is provided for all. And your stock issue Republican, uh, you know, thinks that if, if if you can't afford to pay, it's because you made bad life choices, and you know, shame on you. And if you're, you know, I don't care that you just got diagnosed with stage four cancer and you need a hundred thousand dollars of drugs. If you don't have a hundred thousand dollars, it's economically righteous for you to die. I truly want to believe that that stereotype of Republicans isn't true. I can't believe that people with that little moral compass are there. But the decisions that were taken over the last two years by the, by the current members of the Republican Congress are completely consistent with that worldview, right? To, to vote to take away people's health care and, and strip the ACA. You know, to vote for, you know, virtually the tax bill, all these things we're talking about are consistent with that worldview. But man, I'd like to believe that there's, I'd like to believe there's people of good conscience in the Republican Party who have enough empathy to realize that they and their loved ones are also just one unlucky roll of the dice away from needing some kind of, some kind of safety net. So you want to do this with them. If, if you're elected, when you're elected, Democrats take majority. You don't want to do this without their help. You want them to very much be involved in this whole process. I believe and I want to continue to believe that morality and ethics is not uniquely concentrated in one political party. Having said that, I find the votes that have been taken by the Republicans over the last 24 months completely immoral. Is it possible that this can be done with Trump in office, that in your First two years as a congressman, their Democrats can move on some of this stuff, or would it require there to be a Democrat in the White House? Boy, that's a good question. Would you trust Donald Trump watching your family, your children? <laughs> I don't have any, but hypothetically speaking, no. no, I'm, no. I, mean, I mean, I'm being serious. Like here we are on Father's Day, right? If if you're if if your father slipped and fell and somebody said Donald Trump is here and he can look after your dad, would you say would you trust that he will make the right decisions? No. I would submit to you that that is a huge freaking problem. We know as Americans that we have a president in office who we do not trust to make sensible decisions, which with even the lowest stakes, we're going to deal with that for the foreseeable future. And just, again, I, I like the idea of ending on an optimistic note. Social Security, Medicare, yes, they need fixes, but should people be worried that in a few years they're going to be gone? Or should we feel, okay, no, they, they need to be worked on, but we're going to have these two programs for a while? All, the only barrier to making sure that Social Security is solvent and viable going forward is electing smart, moral people to Congress, and then it's fixable. I would submit to you, we haven't talked about Medicare, but I'd submit to you that we can get there on that too because really getting to universal health care, what that does for every country that's done it is dramatically lower the total cost of health care. And when I say dramatically, like if we just went to something like the ACA with a public option, we probably save something on the order of a trillion dollars a year in health expenses. You can divide that into a lot of pies, one of which is making sure that Medicare is solvent. And that's, 
that should be a Republican idea, right? I mean, the Republican Party loves to say this isn't a revenue problem, it's a cost control problem. When you have every industrialized country in the world that has universal health care that plays two-thirds or less of what we pay for health care, and we spend almost $3 trillion a year on health care, I'm happy to focus on the cost side of the ledger for that piece of it. That sounds good to me. Again, uh, where people can go to find out, I know, I know you have a lot on your website about health care, Medicare, Social Security. Yeah, castinforcongress.com. Go to the Issues tab and prepare to get wonky because there's a lot there. Yeah, and I'm guessing this is something that we're going to hear in some debates down the line. As soon as Roskam's brave enough to show up for one. <laughs> Fair enough. He's Sean Caston, Democratic candidate for the 6th Congressional District in the great state of Illinois. Podcasting with Sean Caston, the election November 6th.